From Amsterdam, this is Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute, a treasure trove of the best and the brightest of American thinking. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Forbes called today's guest one of the 100 most powerful women in the world, Christiane Amanpour. In fact, when she was asked if being a female reporter was an advantage or disadvantage, this was her answer. Yeah, I would say it's always an advantage. Always. Always. It's never been a disadvantage. Uh, reporting while female uh, is uh, a route to success, in my view. You know, the first Gulf War was when I did my first big story, and, and I got a lot of publicity and attention because I was a woman. And Christiane Amanpour got a lot of attention here in Amsterdam back on January 25th, 2019, when CNN's chief international anchor and the host of Amanpour joined the Dutch journalist Ilko Bos van Rosenthal for what turned out to be a witty, revealing, and thoughtful conversation about the state of modern journalism. They covered topics like putting humanity into the news and the current journalistic moment. But for this podcast, we're also focusing on their discussion about the role of objectivity versus truth. Ms. Amanpour's journalistic philosophy gelled in a place that forced many to confront their sense of morality and their devotion to the truth, the war in Bosnia in the 1990s. And so Mr. Rosenthal started this part of the talk by projecting a picture of a graveyard. This is now many years after the war, mm. and it's a beautiful graveyard. Mm. When I was covering it in, in the early 90s, that was the main area in Sarajevo, and, and there was no time to put up beautiful marble headstones and marble graves. It was just dig as between the shelling and the sniping, sometimes bodies going on top of each other, graves being opened, more and more people put in, just little um, wooden emblems they weren't crosses because most of these uh, are muslim obviously in sarajevo but um but i remember doing one of the most poignant stories i did during the war was about a little girl called um al medina and i told the story of the war and and the deprivation and the siege through her headstone which wasn't a stone it was a piece of wood and the city had run out of the letter a and run out of the number for the year that she died. And so I, it was very poignant and very emotional just to, you know, to, to, to tell that story like that. And it had a, a big impact on a lot of people. But I remember, you know, for me, that's what that graveyard says. I always remind myself, it reminds me of my, that little girl, Al Medina, but it also reminds me of the, um, 1984 Olympics because just near there was the ice skating rink where Torville and Dean skated to gold medal uh, to Bolero. And that ice skating rink, they turned into a graveyard, the outside of it, not the inside, and, and the soccer fields that were around it. So that's what I see when I see that. With all the conflicts that you've covered, um, what, what, what place does, does the, the, the Bosnian War take in your, your memory? Because it's, it's been important yeah it's more than important it's been formative for me uh, well I, it definitely i believe it it formed me as an adult it formed me as a journalist it formed me as a person um it 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 i will never ever you know forget bosnia and i will never forget what i learned in sarajevo and i learned very very key principles that have that have that have now i've been able to use going forward for instance the the principle of of truth first and foremost because i got myself into this this situation where people started saying oh you know she's she's 
siding with the Sarajevans. Right. Anyway, the long story they is... You said you were anti-Serb. Yes. Serb. Yeah. Well, I was definitely no, no, anti right. what they were yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I told the story um, because what happened was the, the truth of the story was that it was a multi-ethnic city, that everybody was intermarried, Croat, Serb, Muslim for, for generations. It was the home of the Jews, you know, after the, the persecution and the Inquisition. Sarajevo University, uh, University, the National Museum, has one of the oldest Haggadahs in the world. It's the most beautiful. And, and, it, and it was there. So it was a really, 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 really multi-ethnic, tolerant city. And for whatever reason, part of the fall of the Eastern Bloc, the Serbs who were the powerful ones there, because it was Belgrade and Yugoslavia, they had the army, they had, you know, the politics. And, you know, that was the center of, of Yugoslavia was in Belgrade. And so when Serbia became Serbia, it was still had all the, the, the tools of the state. And they thought, well, you know what? We want a little more land and we want to carve all this land out to just be ethnically pure white Christian Serbs. So you know how we're going to do it? We're going to besiege in a medieval fashion one of the most metropolitan cities in, in Europe, Sarajevo, and we're going to turn it into a medieval disaster zone. And we're going to sit, let's say, in the top rung there on the hill, on the hills, and we're just going to keep bombing. And that's what they did for four years, shelling bombing, shooting, sniping. And of course we were there and we told that story and the, that story was a desperately human story. And, you know, you talked about children who were shot, women who were shot, people just going to do, you know, ordinary things that they suddenly couldn't do, collect food, collect wood because there was no heating, collect water because the water had been turned off, try to find something to make some light because there was no electricity. Um, and they were just just massacred and slaughtered. Added to that, the concentration camps, the the the, the whole scale ethnic cleansing, um, which now we know is genocide, because right here in the Hague in the Netherlands we had landmark cases, uh, which I reported on, which which have enshrined that it was a genocide. And what the problem was, world leaders didn't want to deal with it. They just didn't want to get involved. As we all know, there is a a international requirement to combat genocide under the international law. Um, and they didn't want to do it. So the more I did my stories, the more my colleagues did these stories about what was happening, trying to, trying to cleanse a territory in order to annex it. The more those who didn't want to intervene would say that we were lying or that we were siding with one side and it wasn't fair and, and oh this and oh that. So it was particularly difficult, um, as a young journalist to, to figure out how to deal with that. And I ended up, after being accused of being pro whatever, I don't know what I was, pro life. No, I'm in this case. Right, right. Um, pro truth. Uh, <laughs> you know, pro truth. Uh, I think I got a scoop. And anti, and uh, anti genocide. Um, uh, I suddenly realized that I had to make a stand. So I said, look, you know, our golden rule is objectivity. The thing that is the golden rule for every journalist is objectivity. Now, objectivity means definitely telling all sides of the story, but it definitely does not mean drawing false equivalences and right. either moral or factual. So I wasn't going to say, well, this person is equal to that person. I wasn't going to equate the victim and the aggressor. Um, and I think that in, in, uh, in times of this kind of issue, if you do be, if you are neutral mm -hmm. instead of truthful, 
You are an accomplice. You're an accomplice. Right. You are an accomplice. And in this case, an accomplice to genocide. Mm -hmm. And I was not going to be an accomplice Mm -hmm. to genocide. Mm -hmm. So I learned there to tell the truth, no matter how difficult it Mm -hmm. was and no matter how unpopular it was. And that's why I find it very important. But is, is there a fine line? I, I, we just saw Maduro and you sat, you sat here and you basically said, you know, this guy should go. Um, which is a fair it's statement. Say, it's not me. Sorry? It's hundreds of thousands right. of people on the street. Right, but you seem to, right, to agree with that well, statement. I mean, after... Is it something you would say it? on your show? Um, I wouldn't have said it so glibly, right? right. Uh, but I would have definitely, definitely... 100%. I've right. said it to him face to face. Right. No, you know, I bet. Yeah. Uh, uh, not that you should go, but don't you think you have right. a responsibility if you mm. claim to be elected and representing the people? Yeah. No, I'm not like that. I don't no, fling I'm, my opinions around like right. that, but I do ask the pointed questions. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a trap for journalists, an objectivity trap, the, the false equivalency you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's a trap and right. it's a, in, and we should be very mindful of it. We should recognize what it is we're seeing and what it is we're covering and cover it um uh, truthfully. And I tell you this business of 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 having to be neutral. I mean, that's why we're in the state we're in with climate right. because journalists have mistakenly believed that they owe it to the tiny percentage of liars and deniers mm-hmm. to to equate them mm-hmm. with the massive mm-hmm. overwhelming uh, evidence of science. But is journalism winning in a sense? I mean, if you look at what Trump does, if you look at, um, so the, the mother, the special counsel will come out with a report, maybe in a few weeks, who knows, but he has called CNN and all the others fake news for so long now. No, no, Trump has, sorry. That, that no matter, no matter what Mueller eventually will come up with, his base won't believe it. Right. So you're completely right about objectivity, but but is it a winning argument or are the Bolsonaros and the Erdogans and the Orbans and the Trumps um, in a winning mood? Well, I mean, you could say yes, you could, and that's a very depressing thing to say. Um, the, 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 the very depressing thing is that a Duterte in Philippines or Orban in Hungary or, as you said, Erdogan and, and the others... You know, they have no incentive to like a free press or to respect a free press. It's just not in their bones. It's not in their blood. It's not right. in their DNA. Right. You kind of expect authoritarians mm-hmm. who are not not nurtured in the democratic world. Trump is different. Yeah. That's, so that's what I'm coming to. We, I have, I, my whole career has been working in, in, in countries that are run by people who don't respect a free press. So I'm used to that. And it's dangerous physically. Many of our colleagues have been wounded, not just because they were caught in the crossfire, but because people didn't want, people wanted to shut them up. In Russia, you know, in many, many places, journalists are actually targeted. The Committee to Protect Journalists, which, you know, um, has its, uh, has its own sort of statistics, every year, uh, puts out statistics with the following sober line. The leading cause amongst journalists today is deliberate murder, which, as you know, is quite skewed from the leading cause of the general population, the leading cause of death. So this is a real problem. Um, But what's a thousand times worse and what compounds this problem is when the leader of the United States of America, the world's most developed democracy, um, says the same stuff and therefore makes a 
even more permissive environment for these other non-democratic authoritarian leaders around the world. So that is a very, very big problem. And certainly the first year of Trump with the fake news thing, I think now everybody's a bit bored, you know, people just kind of fake news. Okay, how many times can you say fake news? All right, we'll say it again. Okay. Um, but, um, but I think at the beginning, you know, certainly when I would go places, you know, you You'd hear people just being delighted to accuse us of fake news. Well, if the president of the United States says it, it must be true. And by the way, that's true. People actually truly believe that if the president of the United States says something, he must know something. Which should be how it is. Yeah, it should be. With any other president. But, um, but in, but I was surprised about that. You know, I, you know, you, you always have these conspiracy theories all over the world. I thought that, that other leaders were using it as an excuse, but actually they, many people in many parts of the world believe what comes out of, of the White House podium and this and that. So, um, are they winning? I think they have had a very good run. For a couple of years, but I think the tables will turn and I think the tables are beginning to turn. The great thing about journalism, um, is that, and we journalists is that we have not surrendered and we've not bent over and we will not take it. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah, uh, this is, um, yeah. So this is Israel during the 2006 right. war against Hezbollah. Right. Um, Peter Arnett, a well-known correspondent, yep. uh, foreign correspondent in, in the Vietnam War, uh, Iran, Iraq, etc. For CNN, you must know him well. Uh, and, and he has said there are some stories that may be worth dying for. You, you just said you know, that your perspective was changed when, when your son was born. Are there stories worth dying for? Um, but it's just too hard a question to answer because there's just too much pain and suffering for everybody around when one of us gets hurt or one of us gets killed. Um, I would say that subconsciously or unconsciously, I probably thought that before I thought before my brain kicked in when I became a mother. Um, but I mean, we obviously believed that in Bosnia. I mean, we were there for years and years and years under the bombing and the besiegement and the shelling and the actual targeting of, you know, Bosnia was the very first war where journalists were deliberately targeted. All the others before that, whether it was Vietnam or Middle East wars or Central America and all the rest of it, um, journalists were caught in the, in the crossfire or it was accidental. Bosnia was the first time. And part of that is uh, where they targeted us. And part of that, and now, of course, it's de, de rigueur. We are targeted, de rigueur, by, by, by state actors, by non-state actors. It's a really terrible situation. Um, so Bosnia was the riskiest place. Yeah, well, it was at that time the riskiest place. Right. And we stayed and we stayed and we stayed and we lost a lot of friends, a lot of friends. In, in the Middle East, um, where you were working there, uh, you being a female reporter, has that? I, I, I can foresee circumstances where it's an advantage and maybe sometimes it's not. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I would say it's always an advantage. Always. Always. It's never been a disadvantage. Uh, reporting while female uh, is uh, a route to success, in my view. Uh, I'll, think, I'll <laughs> think of that when my career uh, evolves from here. Well, you know, we live in a very uh, yeah, yeah. fluid world. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Doctors can do a lot. Can do a lot. <laughs> um, um, 
seriously? Yes. Uh, seriously. Okay, so I never thought there was something weird about being a woman or that I was at ever, 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 ever at any disadvantage. Now, call me crazy. Call my parents brilliant, but I was raised never to have thought that there was anything unavailable to me because I was a woman. Um, so, yeah, so I thank my parents and my family for, for just that. Without ever indoctrinating me, it was just I was never told I can't do something because I'm a girl. Um, so... Uh, but not everybody you run into was raised by your parents. No, but they, who, who gave a crap about them? I was doing my stuff. And, um, and it was great. And I was, I came across, came up at a time when it was, you know, the first Gulf War was when I first did my first big story and, and I got a lot of publicity and attention because I was a woman. Um, but that's when it became more and more visible, more and more women and behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, everything. I think the, the big issue right now is that there are not enough women running news organizations. In fact, there aren't any women running any news organizations as far as I can gather, except for at CBS News now, the great Susan Zarinsky has been um, made president of the network, which is fantastic. And is that, a, is that a, obviously it's a problem, but do you also see it in, in programming? Is that what you mean? Uh, n no, because you see many women fronting programs i think on the air there's, no, there's choosing a items topics yeah whatever. i mean i just think that yeah i mean look the world is made up of 50 percent women and 50 percent men and when men have a hundred percent of the power there's a, a problem i mean it's a skewed look what view. happened right yeah yeah so it's it's always you're saying it's always been an advantage and, and yes, it has in, been for in, me. in making first contact with people yes, or first anything. contact with people I think probably because we do live in a patriarchal world still, so that often men will maybe think that they were not getting such a hard you know deal when they saw a woman or whatever, or they would open the door for a woman. They're just usually nice to women right usually right usually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if they're not not nice, you right, know what I mean. Exactly. Um, so, so for me, it was like, okay, well, they're letting me go. I'll they're opening the door. I'll put my foot in the door, and I won't take it out. And that's what happened. That is. You've been I'm traveling. I, I I read with with all oh, female crews. Well, yeah. Um, actually, you're right. In some areas, um, let's say in the Muslim world or whatever, you can't actually go into the into the women's part of the home or whatever right. if you're a guy. Right. So in that regard, being a woman was actually Advantage. substantively adva advantageous. Okay, yeah. mm -hmm. great. Let's go to the the next photo, uh, which is the Haiti earthquake in 2010, um, I believe. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. This is Haiti. Um, now there were so many journalists there uh, on the ground. Um, you don't. That's my old mate, um, David Rust. He's a great, great cameraman, mm. and he's a great hoarder. What oh does he, what my does he god! Hoard? He could fill this theater and make a museum of all the things that he's collected from all the war zones, all the places we've been together. It would be the most brilliant CNN museum. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So you've traveled with him yes, to many places. Yes, since 1992. Right. Yeah. How important is that, by the way? I mean, I, uh, uh, traveling with your it's own great, crew. It's great, actually. It's really great. I don't. All, we don't always do that. I okay. mean, there's a big pool of, of people. But sometimes, in so, some circumstances, we end up being the same people working together. And actually, it, it does. It's like a, a cohesive unit of, um, of, of uh, brothers and sisters in, the same, in service of the same end. Now, the Haiti earthquake um, in 2010, which yeah. I covered myself, and there were 
hundreds of journalists there. Yeah. And um, being CNN, you have to go live all the time. H- how do you pick your story? How do you realize this is what I want to focus on? It's difficult and it's not difficult. I mean, in a place like Haiti, I mean, you you know you were there because it's so much need, there's so much catastrophe. And again, for me, telling the story is always trying to get to the human angle of the story. And I really was very, very mm-hmm. concerned with mm-hmm. the actors in the field, on mm-hmm. the ground, whether it's war or, dis- or famine or, or whatever it is. How do you feel about politicians? That's, that's a I mean, bit it of doesn't, a question. No, I know. It's, it's, but it doesn't sound like your f- favorite breed. No, I mean, it's not no, my favorite breed. No, that's breed. not true. In fact, what I think um, is a, a real problem is the lack of respect um, amongst society that politicians have these days. You know, it's politicians, it's journalists, it's, I don't know, we're all really right at the bottom of the pile of popularity. Um, I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem. Right. And I think we have... We have a duty, I think, mm. not to just piss all over any politician just for the hell of it. No, no, no. But you've 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 seen the House of Commons. You've seen Brexit. You've you've you called Congress dysfunctional. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, no, some deserve but that's it today now. But it right. doesn't mean to say it's all the time. No, of course not. They're not you know? everyone. And you've but... got to be able to look for those right. who are prepared to break with their party or to reach across the aisle. And I, I really try to promote and interview those people because I think it's really interesting and it's mature and it's. But I think what I think is, is, is really sad is how in the democratic world, in the free world, the number of young people who vote, you know, is, is just not high enough. And I think it's getting higher. I think in response to these cataclysmic political developments we've had since Brexit, the whole 2016 yeah. to 2019 mm. has been a particular moment in history. Yeah. And, and, and the midterms people, could make you optimistic when it comes right. to turnout. That's right. But I think that if we're going to, treat politicians like criminals, um, then we're not going to get good politicians and we're not going to get good policies. So I actually think it's a much more nuanced relationship that the press should have with politicians and with politics. Of course, we have to keep hold everybody accountable, but we also have to report on the good stuff and the the success. If we constantly just report the bad Mm -hmm. stuff, it's not just that it's just a one note, Johnny, we, we are contributing to the cynicism in society, mm-hmm. to the lack of hope in society. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely believe that one of the big problems is a lack of hope and a lack of belief in the future. Because I think we humans, you know, without hope, we're nothing. And I really, really do strongly, that's a huge part of my my broadcasting and my reporting has a, I'm looking for the hope, I'm looking for the for the reconciliation. I'm looking for the tolerance. I'm looking for the brave new policies. And when I, that's what I want to focus on. I want to uh, end with a question about, about Europe, but that also brings me back to, uh, we talked about the Bosnian war being one of the key moments in your career, maybe, maybe the key moment. Uh, it cemented your reputation. Um, this thing happened only 40 years after World War yeah. II in Europe. Um, uh, for for many of us, I guess it it also underlined the need for a strong European Union. That this should never happen again. Do these things, and maybe also the danger of nationalism, is this in the back of your mind when you're in the field reporting all the time? Because yeah, it, it seems it is that way. Now, I mean, it's the, it's the motif and the backdrop for for what we're we're reporting right now. Yeah, this ugly rise of of 
populism, nationalism, mm. um, which is all centered, a lot of it centered around hatred of foreigners. Mm. Um, I think Europe, to be honest with you, failed on the great challenge of our time, which was the immigration crisis. And Europe did not... The, um, the recent one, you mean? The, from 2015. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, if, if Europe had been more willing to take their fair share and not letting all of them go to Germany or all of them try to come through Hungary and all that kind of stuff. I think maybe, you know, this continent of 500 million people could have absorbed a million and nobody would have been any the wiser. But because it became such a fight, because it became such a, a thing, it, it destabilized. Um, it destabilized so many countries and it made uh, craven politicians able to use that as a way to, you know, to, to, to give rise to their populist politics. So I regret that. I regret that Europe wasn't able to deal with that properly. And then of course, we're still, um, suffering the effects of austerity in so many areas. And, um, and, uh, you know, that, that's real people really hurting. And if we end with an optimistic note, mm -hmm. despite what, what, all of this, <laughs> exactly. Well, look, I think, um, as I say, I believe 2018 was one of the most difficult years in modern, certainly in my career, I, I mean politically and in every way, because it really did seem like the world was on the verge of a nervous breakdown and nobody quite knew how to deal with all these this turbulence. I think it's sort of, to an extent, calming down. I think also where I get hope is from a backlash whether it's against guns, whether it's uh, against racial inequality, whether it's for women's rights. I think that has been one of the most important reactions to this reactionary force that we've been seeing. And I also think journalism has stood up. And I think the one thing I've learned, which maybe I didn't know, I thought that history went in, in a nice progressive line, but I realized that it doesn't. It's just circular. Mm -hmm. It's just circular. So if we can get through this, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Perfect. An optimistic note there ending Christian Amanpour's talk led by the Dutch journalist Ilko Bos van Rosenthal. Did you know that you can go to our website, john-adams.nl slash videos, where there's a link to the video of this extraordinary event. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for and a veritable treasure trove of great American thinkers and speakers at john-adams.nl. And while you're there, why not become a member of the John Adams? Not only will you support what we do, you get a discount to future live events. In the meantime, you should go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review of this show. This will help get the word out and we can keep on sharing the very best of American thinkers in Europe with you, free of charge. That's it for this week's show. Our theme song is called La Prensa by the Parlandos. Our editor is Tracy Metz. From Amsterdam, this was Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Thank you for listening.